And all the people said, Amen. good to be with you this morning. Thank you, Brian and choir and our musicians. We've got some folks uh, contributing this morning and filling in for us and so grateful, so appreciative of, um, of your worship. In fact, I'm just delighted to be here with you and delighted to hear Wayne this morning. I sort of want to preach on the announcements, but I better not tear there too long. But let me say this much. Um, it's uh, great to hear uh, what Wayne got to go and be uh, do and be a part of. Uh, what a blessing it is. This is uh, just an encouragement, I think, to our whole church family. Uh, the worship that you have done and the fellowship that you have known, um, it has ripple effects beyond anything we might imagine. And there are two of your very own who are there serving so effectively. And part of your worship and part of your fellowship has made that contribution in their lives. And I'm so, so very grateful. And I hear the young people have been very busy this weekend. Many of you have been busy looking after them and caring for them. And um, I think Phil has led uh, some there. And I'm so very, very grateful. I'm appreciative for what, I don't know what to call it. I'm not good with names. But we used to call it Disciple Now, right? And so our... Uh, Young people have been active all weekend, and again, for so many good things that you're doing, I'm, I'm grateful, profoundly grateful. I want you to think with me about prayer and the Lord's Prayer. You'll see it there in Matthew chapter 6, and um, I want to look at this text, and this morning we'll look sort of all around the text and, and sort of get our hearts and minds uh, prepared for this text. But I suppose as we begin, let me just ask us to follow along as I read this text. I'll be reading, I believe it is, uh, your few Bibles, the NIV, and I think that's what we have on the screen as well. And in chapter 6, the Lord instructs us then on how we should pray. You should pray like this. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. But instead, deliver us from the evil one. This prayer and another similar version of it in Luke seems to come in the exchange between Jesus and his disciples. Elsewhere, he's actually prompted by the question, uh, will you teach us to pray? And this sort of model prayer or type of prayer, this formula of prayer, is what we're asked or given as the model or the idea. Scholars debate, and there's a good reason for the debate, it's a serious question as to whether we were actually to repeat these very words, if this is the sort of script we're to follow when we pray, we do that, and I think rightly so when we pray it together. But perhaps the more important sort of larger idea is this is the sort of format of prayer. This is the way we're to pray. This is the sort of outline of prayer. And that's what I want to leave before you this morning. 
I want to, first of all, though, set the stage just a little bit. Uh, we'll work around the edges and come back to a challenge to pray this prayer. Let me, first of all, ask you to do this. Think with me about what we mentioned just in passing uh, last Sunday. And that is, this gospel is trying to emphasize that Jesus is the Son, the true and remarkable and unique Son of God. And there are others who have been named as son and servants and recognized in some sort of royal capacity like David. But Jesus is one who eclipses them all. And Matthew is trying to show that again and again through the story and through the genealogy and through uh, the stories of Jesus' birth and then through those very earliest stories that Jesus is indeed the son par excellence. So when Jesus in chapter 3 is baptized, the heavens tear open. And the voice of God speaks and declares, this, this, this one is my son. That sonship is tested immediately after in the next chapter when Jesus goes to the wilderness, faces the tempter. And that tempter is knocking away, knocking away at Jesus' pretense. And these temptations actually mention this very image, the Son of God. If you really are the Son of God, I mean, for sake of conversation, let's just grant that you're the Son of God. If that's really the way things play out, then wouldn't this be true? Wouldn't that be true? A temptation to lure Jesus, to sort of trade on his status and take advantage. But Jesus instead shows his character as a true son who's always deferential to the Father who's yielding his purpose to the Father's purpose and not taking advantage. The next chapter, Jesus instructs us on these sermons. These Beatitudes, they touch on the Son of God as well. That one of those promises, one of those behaviors I encouraged you about last Sunday, the idea of peacekeeping. Peacekeeping, well, the promise one day we'll see play out for people who keep the peace and make the peace in Jesus' name. Those people... They'll be the children of God. In that fifth chapter, a little later on, you see it again in verse 16. They're called to be light and to be salt, to be agents of change in the world. We're to be witnesses that, to this new status as children of God that comes through Jesus Christ. And when we give witness by showing what God has done in us, we give Glory to our Father who is in heaven. A little later, verses 45, you see it again. And then again in verse 48 of chapter 5, the same idea is in place. There, Jesus has given instructions that we are to yield to those who have power. These imperial forces that are amongst us could just call on you to carry their pack and you'd have to go with them a mile and again and again, Jesus calls for sort of a, a conforming, but a, a reckless conforming, a subversive conforming. He says, carry it, like he says, take the strike, but then turn the other cheek. Carry it a second mile. Do so, meet the obligation, but do so not in some sense that you are less or you have some abject fear to the imperial powers around you, but instead... Do so with a subversive sort of stubbornness that says, I belong to another king. Jesus says, take this lifestyle, live this kingdom life out, embrace the kingdom life, 
And the issue there in, in 45 is this. And that's, that's one of the marks. That's a way that we become the children of God. And then the charge at the end of the chapter, let God be your goal. Let the Father be your goal. You want to be complete and full, perfect, like your Father is complete and full and perfect. Jesus is doing nothing less than inviting us to share his sonship. He's calling his followers to embrace the kingdom life, to embrace the life as a child of God, to come through the Son of God and be honored with being given a status as being part of God's family. And I suppose that's nowhere clearer than in the verses we have here, the verses in a way you don't need before you because you probably already know them. But the idea is this, Jesus instructs us to call God Father. We'll come back to that image. I want to paint one more image for you. I want to set this prayer in its larger context. It's, by the way, right exactly in the middle of the Lord's Prayer. If you count words in the original language, you can't mistake the fact that it ends up exactly square in the middle of this polished sermon of Jesus. That can't be accidental. It's the centerpiece of it at the very heart of it. But furthermore, it's in that chapter 6. It's about... It finds its place in this instructions for piety. What are good Jewish folks uh, supposed to do? And this, this is what they're called to do. They're called to, to give, uh, especially the idea is to give in terms of relief, uh, to give alms, as you might have called it. They're also to pray. And they're also to fast. And our instruction finds itself in a larger network of instructions about how to live out the life. Now, Jesus takes these very images known to Judaism in his day, and he also encourages us Christians with living out these pious, holy, righteous practices. But notice, Jesus sets a new key, puts it in a whole new sort of language, Gives it another framework altogether. It's hard for us to capture this, but in the ancient world, the truth is this. Ancient people, we're not to assume that they knew the sort of interior consciousness that we know as modern people. You walk around with the assumption that you're always wondering inside. Everything's going on in your head, and it's what's going on in you, your head and internally in your own psyche. That's what's important. You're assuming everybody else is the same way. And we always think in terms of meeting our own standards, setting our standards and meeting our goals. It's sort of always internally measured. And it's not enough that you, even your mother's proud of you, right? Uh, but you've got to be proud of yourself. You, you set your own standards, your own goals, and so on. They're all sort of self-directed. But I have to warn you, it, it sets us up to misread the Bible. Because in the ancient world, strangely enough, their sort of psyche was not geared toward this internal consciousness or our own sense of meeting our obligations. They were driven by the image and the opinion of others in a way that we just don't really appreciate. 
Everything in the ancient world was about honor. And the way you felt about yourself was not some sort of internal measure. Had you been true to yourself or authentic or something? That just doesn't seem to be much in the, in the work at all. How you felt about yourself was how other people viewed you. You used their ranking to sort of rank yourself. And so when you stood out and did some excellence, you gained leverage over other folks that were sort of on your level and in your sphere. And if there are higher-ups and power people around, when they looked down and saw you standing out among your peers, they gave you and granted you this esteem. And the esteem of your peers and the esteem of your superiors, that's what drove you. That's what you live for. And you weren't a success. And you weren't really at peace until you were at peace in the eyes of others. And Hebrew folks were not immune from this. And so just notice there, if you look in chapter 6, do you see that paragraph beginning in verse 2? It's all about giving. Now here's the strategy for giving when you are dependent upon other people for your sense of standing and well-being. What do you do? Get noticed, right? The instructions, you see them there? Get notice. Be conspicuous. Make sure the right people see you at the right moment. And this sort of conspicuous display of your generosity will get you the maximum of sort of esteem, and you'll be given the respect from your peers, and they'll notice you, and your stock rises. That's how you measure yourself. That's how you're satisfied in the ancient world. You've made a mark in front of other folk. Go to verse 5. How do you do this routinely? What's the strategy in the ancient world? Well, pray, and while you're at it, you might as well be polished and be eloquent and do so again where folks will notice prime opportunities are praying in public when everybody's there and staging places where you could be seen by the most people. That's the routine of the world. And then look at verse 16. You see the paragraph there about fasting? What do you do when you fast? Well, you sort of exaggerate the costliness of your fasting. You allow yourself to be sort of run down. You show people how much it's cost you to do without food or to spare yourself. That you've not spared your own health and you drag in and you look glum and you show people exactly how much you've been giving up in the fasting process. And you're just hoping for them to say, well, Brother Randy, you don't look so good. And then you could say, well, don't worry about me. I've just been fasting. Whoa, right? That score's big. Now, I just want to ask you, to note 
that Jesus takes this value system in his day and punches it right in the nose. And do you see that his instructions go against the standards in his day? And at every turn, he gives you some backward value system. Uh, people who heard it in his own day just thought, it, this just doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, it just doesn't make sense, does it? Uh, because when it comes to, in, in that paragraph starting in, in verse 2 about giving, uh, what does he say? He, he says, no, I, I want you to give and I want you to be discreet. How discreet do, you, do I want you to know? I, I want you to be so discreet that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. I want you to be discreet. I want you to help people in need. But I want you to help them not out of some special eye uh, and some satisfaction in the fact that you're going to get some esteem along the way. I want you instead to give in such a way that nobody notices. Be as discreet as you can. When it comes to praying, notice here Jesus instructs us to exercise private prayer. Jesus does not forbid public prayer. We pray here all the time in public with one another, and that's just fine. Jesus did the same thing uh, in, his, in his life uh, here on earth. Uh, it's not forbidding public prayer, but it is requiring private prayer. He says, instead of making a show of things, I want you to go and shut the door. I want you to get away. I, I want you to go. And we, we're not really sure of the dynamics of what, what description of a room. We probably think of one of our nice homes where you have a lot of different rooms and you could take your choice or even have a private place set aside to pray or an office or a bedroom all to your own. Probably not that luxurious standard in, in the ancient world, even for a, a wealthy person. But even the poorest person probably had something like this. Even in a largely one, one big room, typically a rectangular kind of house, they might build onto it a lean-to on the outside. You know what a lean-to is? Does that make any sense to you? You might have had one of those on your garage, and you could put, uh, give you a little extra space to put your mower or one thing or another, right? But all that to say, it might be some uncelebrated not glamorous place, but the idea is you do what you have to do to pray. And notice this, the audience is just God. Just God. The same is in place there in the issue of fasting there in paragraph, the paragraph starting with verse 16. The instructions are always this. Um, if you're going to fast, well, well, do yourself up, right? Uh, anoint, right? I guess that means in contemporary uh, world, what, use your air conditioner? I don't know what that means exactly in our day. But anyway, do up, wash your face, right? Look respectable. Don't make your fasting or your praying or your kindness and generosity a, a matter for someone else do this with the audience of God notice each of these paragraphs in the same way you know if you do this for show you kind of get your reward but if you do this out of 
devotion for your father. Your father who's in heaven sees in secret. He sees what's done. And if you want real esteem, if you want the verdict from the one who matters the most, you'll stop seeking the, mad, the verdict of all these other folks and you'll make God your audience. And you'll be happy when you can exercise your devotion. When no one else is looking. When just God seems to be paying attention. Uh, years ago, I visited a gentleman. We were desperately hoping he would join our church. <laughs> um, and I was uh, amazed to find out that he was somewhat of a survivalist. Uh, and this is, goes back some years. And he had told me that he had readied his home that they had built in the neighborhood with special provisions and safety and so on. And um, he sort of gave me this story of his life that he had been interested in faith all along, but was busy, business, uh, busy in the business and so on, and never given church and God the priority, but had had sort of an awakening. And uh, in his retirement years, he was trying to ready and settle the life that he had not really lived in the way that he had purposed to. And now he was going to give his attention to the devotion in every way. And he even suggested that the way he read the book of Revelations, things would kind of play out sort of uh, loudly and grandly. And, and, and people would be put in danger. And he just wanted to say, if any of this kind of dramatic stuff uh, really happens, I, I just want you to know that you can count on me. That when the spotlight is on and the stage of history comes to this momentous event and everything seems to be at stake, he had prepared himself and he was ready. And you can count on me. And I thought things were going to somewhat pass. And then he nailed me. He said, what do you think about that? And I had to do this hard stuff. And I had to tell him, I don't think it's much of a strategy. The truth is, the better indicator of who we are before God is not what we do when everyone else is looking. The real indicator is what we do when no one else is looking. When the audience is just God. And Jesus invites his followers, come, come with me. Come embrace a new kingdom. Come acknowledge a new ruler. Come into my father's house. Come with me and be part of the family. Come take this new lifestyle. Stop living by these other standards that will not matter in time. Instead, embrace with me a love and a devotion and a service and a mission dedicated to the father. Come with me. Take on the role as a child Take on the privilege of what it means. And notice how he tells us to start praying. He says to us to start praying with this word. Wow, this word should change us. It should move us. He says, pray like this. Pray to God and say, Father, Father, wow. 
In the ancient world, you got your identity from your father. You're very often named from your father, right? In my day, I mean, I'm known as Randy Hatchett. That's my dad's last name and family name, but I'm not known as Randy, son of Donis, right? Uh, even more in, in that ancient world, you sort of knew who you were, your identity, your provision. And by the way, we didn't spend all our efforts um, like uh, young families do today to do everything they can for the children. In fact, the children were left over commonly in the ancient world. Children got fed what was left over after the adults were fed. And children were completely, completely at the mercy of how their parents treated them. And if you had a father who stood up for you and treated you with decency and respect, it just stood out in the ancient world. And I don't know where you and your own dad seems to work. I, I don't know. I, I just know it, it does really make a mark on us. I'm reminded years ago, a, a mad preach like a fundamentalist preacher, a mad atheist, went through the South on a speaking tour. He was one of these death of God people. You might have remembered him on the cover of Time magazine, Thomas Altizer, years ago. And he would get so uh, worked up about atheism, he'd preach harder on atheism than most uh, preachers preach. Uh, and he was touring, went through Mississippi, and the person who was supposed to respond to him, uh, going to be a point, counterpoint sort of thing, uh, took ill. And they didn't know whether to... Whether to to cancel or not, because they thought it was kind of unfair just to let him say his word and not let anybody respond. And then they worried about it, but they took an old preacher, an activist, a kind of a moderate to liberal Baptist preacher, very active in the, in the civil rights movement, and um, his name was Will Campbell. And Will was kind of rowdy himself but they decided to give let him give the response and they didn't know how things would go so the night went, went on and thomas altizer went up there and talked about how you have to kill god to let god exist and you know just mad at god and mad at this and mad at that and just preached himself and turned himself around his coat several times and just got all worked up and sat down now there are good responses to thomas altizer but I don't know that I've ever heard a better response than the old country writer and preacher, Will Campbell. He got up and looked over at Altizer, and this is all he said. That's all right, Tom. That's all right. I was really mad at my dad, too. Right? <laughs> I want to tell you, where you stand with God in, in so many ways is driven by this image of Father. But I, I just want to warn you, having a wonderful relationship with your Father doesn't mean that you've moved on to understand that the God of all the world wants to relate to you in terms of a Father. And if you've had a Father that's where, where you've fallen out with or things have even been terrible with, I just want to tell you, you that doesn't guarantee you're going to move on to find out that the, the father on earth who failed you, there's a father in heaven who wants to be your father. And he's got all the father stuff right. And he loves you and he wants to share with you and wants your identity. He wants to draw you into the family. He sent his own son to come and to reclaim you. And now you're welcomed into the family. You can become a son. I think the scripture says something like this. You can't come to the father any other way but what? 
through the Son, right? And the Son invites you in and gives you this remarkable privilege, this remarkable privilege. And he says, if you come through me, here's the standing you have between you and the God of all this world. You can pray to him. And you can call him Father. Now we'll ponder this prayer again in the Lord's mercy. But for right now, do you hear me? I want you to mark this prayer. I want you to pray this prayer. I want you to understand that when you start praying this prayer and speaking to the Father like this, you are exercising your right and authority through Jesus Christ to, become, to be counted as a genuine son and daughter of God. And I want you to see it as the great privilege that it is, this great and remarkable and grand privilege that the God of all this world has reached out to you and is bringing you back in. And the son, the real son, who's been faithful at every turn, can look at us, wayward Sons and daughters and say, it is all right, it is all right. You can come, you can come, you can come through me. And you can be set right again with the Father. And he invites you to start off this way. It's very family, isn't it? Our Father, right? Our Father. Not Jesus' Father. But our Father. And let me charge us to be a people who takes the invitation of Jesus so very seriously. And can I ask you to ponder this prayer with me this week and read its words anew with the note that it is a privilege to be in the family of God. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come to you with an awareness of the privilege it is to speak to you in these terms and to know that you have this disposition toward us, that we are your children and you are our Father. And Lord, I pray that in the hearing of my voice, we might be awakened to the claims of Jesus on our lives. Some have maybe never responded to Christ, but I just call on us, Lord, every one of us, to be surrendering to Jesus Christ this day to acknowledge his great gift, to acknowledge his invitation, and to join him as sons and daughters and to be entered into the family of God. For some of us who have made this journey, Father, awaken us to the privilege and even this week renew in us the privilege without audience. Only an audience to God, of God, the Father, to pray and to be Christian. Lord, we serve you, we acknowledge you, we honor you. We do this in Jesus' name. Amen.